Hello and welcome to the Good Times Sports Club. I'm OJ Borge. And I'm Rhea Hubble. Oh my God, yes she is. Uh, on the show this week, we have former footballer Marvin Sordell. He tells us why he turned his back on the game in the prime of his career. And the man who spent seven years captaining England's rugby sevens. Talks playing in Russia, Christian Louboutin, shoes of all things, and charity work. We've got the lovely Ollie Phillips. Mm. I love the idea of him talking about Le Boutons. Uh, and we look at the greatest multi-sport <laughs> athletes of all time. Um, before we get into the news, I always like to ask you, Rhea, how was your week in sport? Has it been a good one? Is the back okay? Yeah, back is feeling much better. I spent all weekend um, doing rehab and physio. So have done several bikes, several runs and several swims this week. So how is my week in sport been? I have got to tell you, I experienced one of the things I haven't experienced in a long time. And it's called lane rage have you ever heard of this object is that a swimming thing where people are slow in your lane <laughs> no well it is when normally the the speed discrepancy between between two swimmers is so severe that someone becomes raging mm. and for the first time in my life it wasn't me <laughs> you weren't angry about it, it. Was, i wasn't so not angry about it but the guy in the lane with now in in this lane to be fair there was it was a very busy pool and the la- the pool is organized so well with covid it's um double lanes so there's three lanes across this whole pool which means there really is enough for like six or seven people to be in each lane they they can take more and it just so happens that myself my fiance another very very good swimmer was in the pool and we were all swimming reasonably fast <laughs> um not and we weren't pushing it just normal swimming but for us compared to some of the normal public that can be quite a differential and this guy got in and um decided that we were swimming too fast in the fast lane like way too fast yeah, what <laughs> so yeah right so I had stopped and said, listen, we're swimming. This is the set that we're swimming. This is the rest period that we're taking. But don't stress. If you swim on the outside, we'll swim on the inside and we we won't get in each other's way. Don't stress. It gets all good. And um, To cut a long story short, as we were swimming, he's going on and on and on to uh. the lifeguards about how inappropriate we've been. The problem that he doesn't understand is that we also coach at this pool and yeah. know the staff really well. Like they're all of our buddies. So what actually dipped this guy over the edge was when he was saying they're being really irresponsible. They shouldn't be swimming like this. The lifeguards were like, you do realize you're in the fast lane, right? <laughs> There's nowhere for them to go. So if you have a problem with the speed at which they're swimming, we suggest you move over. But he was way too fast for that lane. So he absolutely threw the biggest drop I've ever seen, got out, picked up his water bottle, started throwing stuff as he was walking to the changing rooms. The best bit though, was when I decided, do you know what? It is such a crappy time for everyone. I'm actually going to get out of the pool, still dripping wet in my swimming costume. I'm going to go out into the lobby because you can see the lobby is all glass when he gets out. And punch and him I'm, straight I'm gonna, in the throat, I'm gonna, yeah? <laughs> I'm make amends. And he turned, do you know what he turned around to me and said? He went, how dare you all behave like this? In the 20 years of me being a professional athlete, I have never seen behavior like this. And I went, you must have been a footballer. And just turned around and walked away. <laughs> uh. 
Boom! Did the burn hurt? Why'd you do it, mommy? Um, I mean, yeah, lame, lame rage. I, I, I get lame rage because the problem is where I swim. I mean, I, I don't. I used to be a swimmer. Swimmer, well, you know, I was, and I am. You know, there's a natural. I think everyone's got a natural sport they're good at. I've always been quick at swimming, yeah. you know, and I, and I just am. But. I don't train a lot. So where I train, there only tends to be usually one or maybe two lanes. And it does make me angry when people are in the wrong lane. Because it says fast, there is a fast lane. I mean, sometimes, admittedly, there is only one lane, but there is other places you could swim. And it's that awkward thing, which is, if you're quicker than somebody who's doing breaststroke really slowly, without goggles on, it's like, what do you do? Do I swim round you and look like a bit of a d Do I tap your feet do I do breaststroke do I do like a water polo turn and just blast back up I mean it's it's really awkward I mean I don't totally know what I've never I have the one thing I resorted to once which I really shouldn't have done was I was becoming angry and they were slow and they were in the fast lane I basically swam under them <laughs> and kicked off the wall and went back <laughs> under them the way. And I was just like, hopefully you get the message there but the one thing is I, I think it's very difficult to be angry and to, re- to retain any form of pride whilst wearing a pair of Speedos, like budgie <laughs> smugglers. It's very difficult to be exactly. angry in budgie smugglers. I think you'll find. Exactly. Um, you also have a- an exciting week of sport coming up, don't you, OJ? I do, yes. I'm doing something called the, um, the Second City Divide, which is off-road ride between two of the cities in the UK, between Glasgow and Manchester. They're termed as the two second cities. Don't ask me, I didn't come up with them. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, are you a faffer before you go out on a bike I used to be. I am no longer, though. Yeah. I've I've got a bit better over the years, but I can do when it gets into my head. I can faff. Imagine getting ready for a bike pack. It's just (laughs) faff times 10,000. My bag's only turned up today and I go first thing tomorrow morning. I couldn't work out how much to pack. Do I need a Hawaiian shirt when we're going to be stopping (laughs) in a front? You know, like like that sort of stuff. So I've just been faffing. And what I realised is the distances are a lot more than I thought. It's all off-road and the climbing is a lot more. Like day one is 100k and 1700 meters of climbing you know off road pretty meaty okay day two 125k 3000 meters of climbing that's punchy that's punchy (laughs) well yeah day and then day three is is you know the same sort of thing again so i went from being oh this is going to be lovely we'll stop and have a beer i've packed a hip flask and a hawaiian shirt my god yeah yeah literally why have i not tapered for three weeks for this why have i not gone and got a a massage not just sports massage but a whale song one to prepare me mentally for what's coming so yes i'm excited about it next time we do a, a show on the uh on the sports club i will be um, yeah, I'll, I'll have stories, I'm sure, of how well or badly it went. But I I tell you what I have done. I throw money at the problem. I sh- yeah, um, I'm not, <laughs> I've had an argument with my wife recently because she went, I've seen a lot of stuff turn up. How much have you actually spent on this holiday? With new bike packing bags, I had to buy some new Lycra. I bought, I bought about 4,000 calories per day's worth of food, you know, and I, I made the mistake of being honest. And she's like, oh. I see. So basically you spent a family holiday's worth of money on a four-day bikepacking trip. <laughs> I bought some new handlebars. I was such a faff, I bought new handlebars, which I haven't been able to get on with. But listen, it's not about us. We've done a very long story about us and our week. Let's invite you into the club and do the news. And we'll start with former World Athletics Chief Lamine Diak, who has been sentenced to four years in prison on corruption and money laundering charges. Uh, the charges relate to the Russian doping scandal and receiving Russian money for a Senegalese presidential campaign. And Toyota are heavy favourites to defend their crown at the 24 Hours Le Mans this weekend. Oh, love this race. However, with the race taking place three months later, extra hours of darkness and heavy rain could derail their bid. 
Have you ever been to Le Mans? Um, I have. I wasn't there during the race, though. Um, and I just, uh, I, I would love to go and see it. I, I went, I worked, I did a show there. We did for, it, was it for Toyota? Yeah, Nism, it's Nismo Toyota. It is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Nissan. Nissan. So it was for Nissan. Um, and basically, we did a 25-hour YouTube broadcast, me and a team of presenters. And it was because they epic. had <laughs> this thing called the Zeod a few years ago now. And it was the first ever electric race car. And they were attempting it. It was zero emissions on demand. And, you know, it had this weird sort of shape. The thing was, though, they'd spent so much money on this broadcast, they couldn't afford any actual TV rights <laughs> to Le Mans on the broadcast we did. So we did it in a studio. And we, you know, and we had, we had a camera in the car. Uh, and then there was another car we did some stuff with as well. But the problem is the Zod lasted, uh, I think, an hour and 15 minutes before it went out. And then the other car lasted, whatever, four hours. So basically, we did about 18 hours of broadcast <laughs> with just data. <laughs> with just data. And it was uh, it was an odd way to experience Le Mans, let me tell you. It was I a very odd way to experience it. Imagine that was a yeah. juicy presentation. It was. Luckily, I, I luckily I, I looked out. I got the, the shifts where stuff was happening. I mean, one guy literally did four hours on his own talking about data. Anyway, um, Tottenham are in advanced talks to sign Real Madrid star Gareth Bale. The Welsh international left Tottenham for a then world record fee of £85 million in 2013. Right. It is now time for Marvin Sordal. As a player, Marvin represented England at youth level, played in Team GB's Olympic football team and played Premier League football for Bolton and Burnley and six other teams across England's Football League. Last year, Marvin turned his back on the game that he'd played since he was just a child, citing the damage professional football had done to his mental health. Now, Marvin is thriving in a second career as a writer, activist and producer. We caught up with him from his home in Watford, where we sought to find out how his new life is keeping him busy. Marvin's professional career began on the Sunday league pitches where he was scouted by Chelsea. Though Marvin was rejected from their setup, he told us that the lessons he'd learned in that process helped secure him a contract with Fulham before joining Watford, where he made his first team debut. For someone that had worked so hard to enter the game, I was keen to find out at what point the game stopped being fun for him. Probably the moment I left Watford, I would say. Um, because you, you all of a sudden realise the expectation and pressure that comes with the job. You know, I was 20 when I left Watford to sign for Bolton. See, Bolton were a Premier League club at the time. Signed me for £3 million pounds or wherever it may have been. And all of a sudden, there's a lot of pressure for me to perform playing in the Premier League. Um, being a Premier League football player is you know, unlike anything really I imagined it to be. And you know, the invasion of privacy, you know, the where your life isn't necessarily in your own hands was a big shock and all of a sudden I realised that professional football was wasn't just going out and, and playing football. There was so much more to it. There was there was a lot that you'd have to deal with to be successful and which I struggled to get my head around really for, for quite some time. And because of that you you know you can't just go out and enjoy yourself and play and and, and hopefully play well you know there is so much more to it than just playing well did you find that people were treating you less as a human being more as a product yeah i mean that's that's pretty much the football industry summed up to be honest is you are that's it you're an, you're an asset you're an investment um 
and yeah, you're essentially a product. So what your worth is, is, is what your input is, what, sorry, what your output is essentially. Um, the experience you had in football, is that, I mean, is it idiosyncratic? Is it individual to you? Or do you think there are a lot of people like yourself, stories that are not being told of people who yeah. feel this about football? My story, my story is the common story in football, if anything, to be honest. And, and I've spoken to tons of players since I've retired, you know, before I retired as well. And it's just what we know. It's what we know that we have to do to survive, you know, not, not just to thrive in the, in the industry. To survive in the industry, you have to just get your head down and accept whatever is thrown at you. And some people deal with it better than others. Some people hide it better than others. Um, and some people are just accepting of it. I wasn't accepting of it, which is why my career and my mental health went the way it did, because I wouldn't accept being treated a, a certain way or being spoken to a certain way or, or without asking to understand why this is occurring or, you know, I'm being spoken to in a certain way. I would, I'd always ask because I've been taught and I was brought up to be respectful and to, as well as giving respect, to receive respect. You know, I, I like to think that I'm somebody that is well respected because of the fact that I hold myself in, in a certain manner. And so when I'm treated in a disrespectful manner, I don't react well to that as most would in, in any other given workspace or environment. But the football industry is very unique in that sense. So it isn't a case of, you know, I'm being spoken to in a, you know, like a, like a child almost at times. And you think, well, I'm not a child, so can you address me in a different manner? But that's, that, that's a problem. That's a very problematic thing. Marvin, do you think if you'd had a coach around you who'd given you that respect, do you think you'd still be playing now? Because you retired last year at 28, you're 29 now. These are your peak years as a footballer. Um... Potentially, but you have very you have so many different personalities within the football industry. You know, coaches, managers, players, that you're not always going to get people like that. I had managers and had coaches like that who I could converse with and and treated me in a very respectful manner. But I had also some people who treated me in a very disrespectful manner. And so, you know, you can't. You, it's life isn't always perfect. You're not always going to get the perfect scenario where you're living in a place that you like, you have teammates that you like, you're going to have um, a manager or a coach that you like and the fans are going to respond well to you and you're playing well and, the, the, the you know, all of these things are, are factors in to what can make a career at a specific place successful or not. You talk about the ugly side of football, um, which is something that drove you out of the game and, and made your mental health deteriorate. What is the ugly side of football? All of those things, you know, people talk about mental health and you know racism, homophobia, bullying. Bullying is a big thing that happens in football, and that's from from people within within inside the club. From from people within inside football, yeah. But we don't call it bullying. We don't label it as bullying. We just say that's what you need to do. You just need to get your head down and carry on because that's what you're supposed to do. You know, you you can't question authority in any given way. You can't be seen to step out of line at all because if so you're going to get punished and you're if you're out of line you're going to get either thrown out or you're going to get 
discipline so you get back in line. I guess sometimes you look at football and you see maybe the players who are playing the Champions League, you know, sort of the top few percent, and it seems like they have all the power within a football club. Again, are they the exception to the rule? Um, that's not always necessarily the case, you know, because how many players are within the team? You might have one superstar on that team, and that won't be on every team, who is above that, who is the exception to the rule, because their stock is that high that they're, they are of more value than the people that they would answer to, in a sense. So if the, the person that player answers to is normally the manager, and if the manager is more disposable than the player to the club, then the player will have the power in that situation. Whereas in, in more often than not, the, the players are more disposable. Um, just just to finish off the story to get to where we are right now, as long as you don't mind me talking about yeah. it, um, you got to such a low with the dark side of football and your mental health deteriorating. You got yourself to a point where you attempted to take your own life. Mm-hmm. Just just detail what happened up to that moment and then how you have bounced back from that. Um, a loss of knowing who I really was, which kind of happened over a period of time as opposed to it wasn't like there wasn't like a, a tipping point, you know, it was over a period of time of a lack of identity of, of, and being treated in certain ways and not really understanding what was going on around me as well. I mean, there, there were there, there are so many different factors to it, which I've touched on in, you know, in so many different conversations before. And a lot of these things added up really as opposed to I guess one thing single thing kind of pushing me over the edge it's a lot of things building and chipping away over a period of time and I got to that point without with with a a lack of self-worth not wanting to continue in life because I thought life life was more painful than death at that point and what kind of well how I am where I am today is because I've told that story umpteen times. Um, I have found different outlets to understand why I felt, how I felt and how I got to that point. And of course, one football was one of those things as well, where I understand that my personality isn't suited to just being a yes, yes, sir, no, sir type of person. I can't understand how somebody treating you in a certain manner is fine. No, I, I won't accept that. I won't accept, accept somebody being disrespectful to me or telling me to do something without me being able to question that as an adult. I, yeah, I mean, that's, that's of course, that's, that's, you know, one major element and factor that added to it, but also just a lack of, identity I think as well you know in football we we don't the industry in football doesn't allow for players to step outside this environment and say right I want to be an artist I want to be a musician I want to be a filmmaker I want to be a writer you know you said that because you said you were learning the piano you were learning to cook creatively and a manager said stop it just concentrate on football yeah I mean that's that's a very common thing and a very common phrase actually within football is is concentrate on football Whereas I've I've questioned that and I've questioned that probably my entire football career as well. And I've always said, what does that actually mean? Because 
if I go to training, I get there early, I do my gym work, I train, train hard, I go into the gym afterwards or I do extras on the pitch afterwards, that's concentrating on football. But if I get home at then three o'clock and I fancy writing or painting or playing the piano, I don't see how that takes away from anything else that's going on in my life. So it, that was that was one of the most frustrating things I battled, really, and I did have to battle it throughout my career because that is just the mentality that exists within the game. Is it difficult to talk about this previous life as a footballer? Not really. I mean, it's, it's being very honest and... I can speak honestly now because I'm not in the football industry. You know, there are many people who want to say this, but they can't. And the problem, they, the reason why they can't is because if they do, it's going to affect their career. Whereas because I'm in a completely different space, in a completely different industry, I can, I'm able to talk freely about this. And people say, you know, that's great. You're able to be so honest. I wish other players were like this and say, well, you don't give them space. You don't allow them to talk like this. So they're not going to. Yeah. I mean, because I guess the look of it is from the outside, people would start thinking, even knowing your story, what you've been through, the lows, people would still think, I can't believe you're throwing this away. It's not throwing it away at all. I mean, I had a dream to be a professional football player. I had a dream to play in the Premier League. I achieved it. I achieved all the dreams that I wanted to, to achieve in football you know, and more, really. You know, I played for England at under 20 and under 21 level, played in the, in the Olympics with Team GB. Played in the Premier League with two clubs and played in the Championship, played League One, League Two, scored goals in multiple levels. So <laughs> what am I throwing away? You know, I've I've achieved it and I want to achieve more in a different capacity, in a different area. Well, talk to me now then. What do you want to achieve now? What are the dreams now? Loads. I mean, it's endless really because I have multiple areas that I work in, you know, I'm, I'm a writer, producer, I own a production company, of course. Um, and I just love to tell stories. I want to make documentaries, films, series, adverts, you know, you name it. I like, I like to tell stories and I want to continue to be able to write. I want to use my voice to help support people and show people that there's more to life than football. If there was one thing you could change about football, if there's one thing that you could change right now that would make all of the players, you and everyone else happier what was it you change freedom to be yourself and I think that, that I mean that comes from multiple places it comes from media it comes from social media it comes from fans it comes from clubs just the freedom to be themselves will change a lot of things in football would most players I mean because the problem is sometimes I guess the lack of freedom comes from sponsorships it comes from the amount of money clubs are paying and that again comes from sponsorship so players are expected to behave in a certain way do you think most players would prefer to take less money for more freedom probably yeah i would say so making you know making films writing books i mean you it can also be a tough world can't it, it could be very predatory at the same time do you think everything you've learned through football has set you up ready for this next this next chapter in your life yeah, I mean, what what you have to face in football, the ups and downs and on on such a consistent basis and just being able to bounce back and being able to keep going regardless of what is in front of you. That's how I got into football. That's how I stayed in football. And every fo single football player has that mentality without realising how powerful it is. 
you know you go into the real world and people you know a lot of people don't have to be like that because life is not like that life is not necessarily like that you know a lot of people listen to this and probably say life is like that football is a very different beast you know when you're you're you know you're literally being shouted at belittled and made to feel like absolutely nothing and that could happen on a daily basis and you still have to get up and you still have to keep going and you still have to find a way to push through and to fight you know that doesn't happen in a normal in an ordinary work work environment because you go to hr whereas that doesn't exist in football no <laughs> could you imagine if any of the clubs you played for had a hr department how inundated do you think they would be by players <sighs> yeah do you think do you think the fact that football's had to slow down during covid and the shutdown and the lack of crowds do you think that will help football in the long run the fact that it's had to take a bit of time out the fact that you know you don't now have 40 50 60,000 people in the stadium screaming at you the fact that it is all just maybe a little bit more arms length is that going to help football this darker side of football the ugly side of football maybe it might do i don't know i mean i think lockdown has given a lot of people perspective but then at the same time things always go back to normal you know so who knows who knows how this is going to be i mean i see a lot of things on a on a daily basis whether it's in some group chats that i'm in or or on social media i see a lot of things and i take a lot of things in and i just think so many people are say that they're wanting to move forward and they're wanting better work environments and and just more open forums really for people to be themselves but it doesn't necessarily feel like that in in the way people have been acting i think that's the most diplomatic way of saying it <laughs> marvin you're an inspiration to talk so i you know it's I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. I am excited by whatever comes next for you. What will we see next? What's the next thing you release? Got a, a series that we co-produced with Yahoo. Um, it should be coming out shortly. That's actually on the darker side of the game, um, which I interviewed. I can't remember how many there are now. There's loads. Uh, interviewed X number of current and former players anonymously um, about their experiences on certain subjects within football. So bullying, homophobia, racism, etc. Um we have a short film which is in which we've submitted to quite a few festivals. Um we have an advert that we did for the Heads Up campaign that should be coming out fairly soon. Um and we're doing a we're filming a documentary what a mini documentary uh next month as well which but we'll be looking to put that out quite quickly after we've done it as well so it's actually quite a lot i i You're busy man. sometimes yeah yeah uh well marvin it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you uh, thank you so much for taking My the time place. i really appreciate it i think i think your story is compelling and i think the more footballers or the more people in sport full stop who talk like you do who come out hopefully that will engender this atmosphere where people can talk and people aren't just bullied and you know there is ability to talk about it hopefully you know hopefully, everyone's yeah. happier that's what everybody wants yeah marvin thank you mate appreciate your time cool cheers thank you oj now i had the good pleasure to catch up with my old friend ollie phillips um ollie 
so many of our listeners will know the sport of rugby very, very well. Um, and therefore, I'm hoping we'll know you very well. But for those of you who don't, I would love for you to give me a little whistle-stop tour of your amazing rugby career, how you got into it and where you ended up. Yeah, yeah sure. With, with pleasure. So um, it all started for me as a four-year-old kid. I basically had two left feet, so I couldn't play football. So, you know, my parents said, might as well go play rugby. I was pretty boisterous and I was quite a fat kid. So they sent me off to my local mini rugby club, Hove. Um, and from there, my just love and affinity with it grew. Did the classic, you know, played every weekend. And then got a little bit more serious getting to school. And then by the time I was 16, 17, 18, I was playing England schools, England under 18, England 16, and starting to sort of, you know, just love rugby, basically. Never probably really anticipated or thought that I could do it professionally. Uh, you know, Harvard ambitions, obviously had childhood dreams of you know, playing for England at Twickenham and all that sort of stuff. But if, hand on heart, if I you know, truly believe they're all going to happen, I'd probably be lying. I just, I just love playing. And then I actually got involved with Harlequins as my first club as a sort of 17, 18 year old lad. And I was, and they were offered me a contract and I did the sort of, a classic schoolboy era as an 18 year old of, of messing up my A-levels a trick. So I was predicted AAB to go and read economic history with economics at the London School of Economics. So you can tell I was wow. going towards <laughs> economics, right? I, I was forecasted AAB. I got BBD and my D was in economics, right? So I thought, <laughs> probably so not the you... right fit here. You really, really understand how everyone in COVID time has felt with their A-level results. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Horrific. That was a terrible day, right? Ter I just didn't have a mass um, infection slash, you know, you know, crisis to blame. Of, you know, <laughs> I, I was just useless and basically messed up my levels But, you know, I discovered rugby was one and girls in sixth form, which is probably the other, which was another huge, you know, distraction. So... Anyway, I was very fortunate that Durham University said, you know what, we'll still honour the degree place that we'd offered as my sort of secondary backup. So I ended up going to Durham and it was the best decision I ever made in my life. Went up there. I'd never you know, been more than two miles from my own home in Brighton on the sea seaside. So going up north as a soft southerner was an interesting <laughs> baptism of fire. But, you know, within a year of being there, I hadn't learned my lesson because I then got scouted by the Newcastle Falcons and like lured in Johnny Wilkinson was there at that point in time so I was like I've, you know I've got to go play with him um so signed for them and obviously when you've got a face that only your mother can love then you, you need some form of assets so I was like well if I'm friends with Johnny Wilkinson and I play pro rugby <laughs> you know, maybe I might get a girlfriend at some point in time so um, did it work no 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 single forever <laughs> <laughs> until, yeah, until, until now, now until now my wife is incredibly charitable but there we go um, <laughs> so yeah I mean from there it just sort of spawned and then I so my career in in very fast summary then went six seven years seven years with Newcastle Falcons uh, and then uh, I was picked for England on my first year of of being at the Falcons so I got picked into the sort of wide England squad sevens became my sort of niche so I ended up playing 11 years for England sevens. I was captain for six of those. Um, and then in 2008, 2009, I got voted as the best player in the world. And so that spawned a, a major interest for me or in me 
from what at the time was Europe's biggest club, which was a team based in Paris called Stade Francais. So being from Brighton, you know, I can resist wearing pink every single day. So yes. I, had, <laughs> I, had, I had to go and play in pink for three years over in Paris. Yeah. Um, and then I came back because at the time, Martin Johnson was like, look, we need you to come back. We can't pick you if you're going to be, we can't pick you for England if you're going to be playing in France. So I came back with all these sort of aspirations, signed for Gloucester. Uh, and then I and crooked myself in June 2013 at a Sevens World Cup in Moscow, of all places. Oof. Yeah. I don't know what's more depressing about that statement, whether where you were possibly injured or the fact it was a career ending injury. You know, you weren't in Fiji, so you could at least enjoy your yeah, exactly, time. Yeah. Yeah. Red Square <laughs> um, wasn't that appealing when I No, exactly. Tell me, you obviously you've sort of admitted you're kind of a good boy um, on w throughout your career, but do you have a most embarrassing moment from your from your career? Is there something you did that you got you sort of hang your head in shame for? Oh God, I mean, there's a few. I mean, I, I mean, know I, you I, roomed. I know you roomed with a very famous rugby player at Stade Francais, and I can imagine you two were quite naughty. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean. Just because I didn't booze, I don't. I don't think I can. I can falsely try and lay claim to the title of that I was a good boy. But um, <laughs> I just, you know, I, 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 probably I was even more irresponsible on the basis of you know I, I wasn't. I couldn't even blame blame drink on on the foolish things that I did. Um, <laughs> one of the players at Stad is a guy called Pierre Abadan, and he used to go out with one of the Bond girls who was in Casino Royale. I mean, she was sponsored by <laughs> Dolce and Gabbana. And he said to me, look, Oz, we've got a, we're going to a big fashion dinner, fashion party out on Place La Concorde at the bottom of the Champs-Élysées. Like, we've got a spare seat. Do you want to come? I was like, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Like, this would be great fun, right? I go to this fashion dinner and I don't, as you can tell by the garments that I'm wearing this evening, the way I've done my hair, I don't know a huge amount about fashion. So I sit. I'm this... sure you can scrub up nicely, Ollie. No, they, well, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm hoping this is allowed for this broadcast. But they say you, you know you can't polish a turd, but you can roll it in glitter. So that was you know, that was with <laughs> me. So. so anyway, I went to this fashion dinner. So I'm sat around this table of ten, and I, I know who they all are now, right? But I'm at the time I didn't know who any of these people are. I'm sat next to to my left a lady called Dita Von Tees, who is this like burlesque yeah. dancer. That's right. <laughs> I'm sat next to. Kate Moss's agent um, to my right, who sort of sat there. Kate Moss is due to arrive. I've got Dolce and Gabbana, Pierre and his girlfriend. Uh, the, I've got the head of the Louvre. And then <laughs> there is a guy at the end who I've never... Uh, and I've got a guy called uh, Christian Laboutin, like this bloke who says he makes shoes with red soles. And then this other bloke who sat on the chair. He's got, like, glasses on, white gloves. And I'm like, dude... It's like December in, in like what are you doing? And there's a guy called Karl Lagerfeld, right? So who's now <laughs> on the right? So yeah. I was like, I, I, so I sort of sat around these, this table and they're all talking about, oh yeah, fashion, darling, fashion, fashion. I was like, yeah, <laughs> no idea, but I was loving it, right? Anyway, they said that you've got to enter this raffle, hundred euros for this raffle. I was like, hundred euros? What a raffle? And they said, don't worry, you're guaranteed to win. So I was like. It's not really a raffle then, is it? You just give me 100 euros <laughs> and I win something, right? So, you know, I paid this 100 euros. I thought I'd better do what everyone's doing. Pay this 100 euros and I won this, uh, this pair of shoes, right? This women's pair of shoes. <laughs> that, that, In honestly, your size? <laughs> no. Size six with this, like, 
clutch bag that comes with it, right? And I, to be fair, these shoes were beautiful, but I was like, what the hell's this? So, you know, typical rugby lad, like, I'm trying to put these shoes on, prancing around, <laughs> like, Carl, and they, they're made by Christian, these shoes, they're yeah. Labutin shoes, right? So, anyway, I get home after, after this dinner, and I'm living with a guy at the time called James Haskell. So, are you, who, I think you know Raya, but... Um, yeah. Anyway, anyway, so I get home, I said, Hask, mate. I've, he said, how was the dinner? I was like, oh, I was all right. You know, a load of old-fashioned nonsense. I didn't know. I was sat next to this bloke, Carl, someone in glasses. Didn't know who he was. <laughs> he was like, Carl Lagerfeld, what are we talking about? Blah, blah, blah. He's, he knows what we're talking about. I was like, there's some woman, Dieter, Dieter von something. She does a load of dancing. Anyway, and I said, look, I won this pair of shoes. And I, was, I said, what do I want these for? So I tossed them in the bin, the box <gasps> in the bin. And he's like, what shoes? I pulled them out and he said, no, 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 wait. So he sort of searched online and these shoes were three grand. Yeah. So I was like, I was like, three grand, right? Get them out, get them out. Polish them up, polish them up. Let's flog them, let's flog them. And I am a hopeless romantic, right? I am a hopeless romantic. So I was going to sell these shoes and I thought, you know what? I'm going to keep these shoes. This is, honestly, this is a gospel truth story, right? So I'm going to keep these shoes and Cinderella, like the woman of my dreams, like who I am meant to marry, these shoes will fit, right? And I never, ever removed them from their bag ever again, right? And this was in 2009, this experience was, right? Uh. Fast forward to December 2018. And my wife is pregnant, well, my girlfriend is pregnant with my, our first child. And I was going to propose to her, right? I decided I was going to propose to her. And she'd never sit, like... No one had ever seen the shoes. Nobody ever even looked at the box and that. But she, I, once when we were moving house or moving some stuff, she'd seen like a, a Labutan box, and I was like, never look in there. It's just like <laughs> there's a pair of shoes in there, and whoever I marry, they're going to be for them, right? And I didn't think. And obviously, at the time, she's probably thinking, oh, maybe it'd be me, maybe not. But I didn't say anything. <laughs> this was like a year before, two years before, okay? And um, anyway, I've got all my family, thirty people all around for Christmas, Christmas Eve. I just sort of say, look, everyone, thanks for all being here. I just got a sort of special announcement. And I'd wrapped this box of shoes, right? And I had a wedding ring, an engagement ring in my pocket. And I put the shoes down in front of her and I read a poem to her about, like, how much, like, you know, I loved her, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember putting the box on the front and she knew what was in the box at this point. She could tell us, <laughs> you know? And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I don't know if these things fit. Like, <laughs> what, you know... What if they don't fit? Like, you know, I, I've, you know, to this point, the story is perfect, right? But if this <laughs> goes wrong, if this doesn't work, I'm a nightmare, right? So I read the poem and I, met, I didn't obviously, t I told her afterwards, but during the whole process of unwrapping the box, I was like, oh my God, they've got to fit. They've got to fit. Because they don't, I can't marry you. I can't marry you. It's all over, Red Row. And I'm not, I swear on my, my grave, these things fitted like perfect like inch perfect right <laughs> and these and she wore these shoes down the aisle for our wedding day that yeah. is yeah. absolutely so, perfect mate so there, that you is go, there you go absolutely perfect i love it that's like a crazy story turned fairy tale which is fairy absolutely tale. brilliant fairy tale. um Let's let's move on a little bit. Post career, you um, went into coaching, and I think it was it last year, the end of last year, you started um, coaching a very prestigious female program. Yeah, yeah. I um, 
So that came through, so a very good friend of mine who I used to play with and against and know well is sort of head of, head of performance for Wales, a guy called Ryan Jones. And he sort of rang me and said, look, we, we really want to make a big play. The Commonwealth Games, the Olympics, you know, women's sport is, is a major focus for us as a, as a union. Um, and, and we want somebody that's good, that can help us really grow women's sport, women's rugby, in the, in the sevens arena because as a sport and a spectacle, it's much more attractive for a female audience. It's it's less about the, you know, I mean, sticking your head where no one else would actually, you know, touch <laughs> in the peeing down rain. It's about fast flowing rugby, athletic, in the sunshine, like just a much better brand for us to, to, to go with. And we would love you to come in and coach, you know. So I said, okay, we well, clearly don't want them to be any good, but, you know, great, I'll come <laughs> and coach, right? So I, I, I loved it, to be honest. I, abs- I, I was really apprehensive about the whole experience um, because I had always wanted to coach, but I, I never had the sort of guts or gumption to, to go, just to give it a go. Um, yeah. COVID really came at the, I mean, it, it never, you know, it never comes at the, the right time, but it really came at the, at the, at the worst time for, for us and our programme. We were just about to sort of go properly live, go to the sort of European Championships with it and everything else like that with the girls. And they were buzzing so yeah that was a really you know a proper mood killer but um but you know it was it's been an amazing experience so far yeah well um you know I'm a big advocate of women in sport and it's so great to see with your daughters and the work that you're doing in women's sport I hope that the Wales women's seven team go really well um with you at the helm but mate what I really want to talk to you about today is all the post rugby stuff because I actually met you outside of rugby doing something totally crazy um and you happen to have been a rugby player and this is where i just i love the stuff that you do because you i don't know if you can say no to anything you're always up for a challenge and if you can raise amazing money for incredible causes you're you're totally game yeah 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 i mean well so we met when you were at invest africa that was when it was all happening you're doing some amazing sort of transformation projects out in africa and I was getting involved with a uh, an AIDS awareness charity called Scrum, based out in Africa, um, in in predominantly in Swaziland and Kenya. But um, yeah, so that's where our sort of first introduction came through. I mean, yeah, I mean, my I guess as a, as a root cause, we can talk about all the the crazy stupid things that I've done in a, in a sec. But the root of it always was, you know, when I finished my rugby career, I was incredibly. Well, I was incredibly sad, actually, when I finished rugby because it ended earlier than I wanted it to happen. But I was also incredibly grateful just for, the, you know, I guess, the, A, the experiences I'd had, the, you know, the stories that I can share, like you know, some of them I've just shared already, um, and also the people that I'd met, like the network that I'd built. And you know, I, I realised that I was in a very you know, fortunate position that, um, that you know, when I was five years old, six years old, running around Hove Mini Rugby Club, I probably never dreamed could ever have happened. And originally, it just, if I'm honest, the very first experience that I had, which was this thing called the Clip Around the World race, which was a sailing race around the world. And my training for this Clip Around the World race had happened very late because I'd got injured at the World Cup, only had five weeks to go. And I had teamed, the only people I could train with was the Sapinda Rainbow Foundation, Nelson Mandela Rainbow Foundation. So I did all my coaching training with 12 representatives from the Sapinda Rainbow Foundation who'd never even you know, been out there, you know, township, let alone South Africa on a boat sailing around the world. So, I mean, 
that was probably one of the most humbling experiences I'd ever been on, let alone the race, right? And I just remember my, my reasons and rationale now in hindsight for doing the Clipper race were out of desperation, right? I was lost. I was, I just got injured. I, you know, my career had suddenly been pulled out from underneath me. I was 29. I was like, what am I going to do now? Probably clinging on to anything I could and, and actually just so somebody, somebody was obviously looking out for me because it was the best decision I ever made. Right. But, but I always thought to myself, well, there's no point just doing this stuff for the sake of it. You know, let's, let's do it to, to raise some money and raise some awareness and profiles for, for charities. You know, there's no such thing as bad charity, but it's just some charities that were very important and relevant for me. And one of them was the Alzheimer's Society for me because my grandmother, unfortunately, six months before had, had died because of that. So I was vehemently sort of pursuing that cause. And as a result, I've I teamed up with probably, there's probably four or five charities now that I work well, there are. There's four or five charities that I work with all the time. And across those five, in five years, we've raised to just shy of 2.7 million now. Doing all, all these chari- all these, you know, events and world records and whatever else like that. And all the, you know, the, the certificates at the end, the experiences are, are obviously great. But if I'm honest, they're just dust collectors that sit on your wall. The, the most amazing thing is just, you know, stuff like this, like, you know, Ray and I have always got a story. You know, we've created loads of stories since, right? But we've got a story because do you remember that time that we met in, I think it was Green Park, you know, where we're talking about like Invest Africa, blah, 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 right? Do you know, like life is about stories, it's about experiences. And, and that's what, you know, that's what I love about it. I've never, ever gone to anyone. Oh, do you remember that time when I was on my own? Like, I've, 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 you know, I've never said that, right? You know, so, you know, I love, I love that piece of like, right, Ray, do you remember that time we did this stupid thing and da, 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 and, and you're like, oh, God, yeah, you know. And it can be small, it can be big, it doesn't matter. But, you know, life is about those stories and experiences and that's why I do the crazy things and we try and raise a load of money at the same time. Ollie, listen, um, hook me up on one of your adventures. You've invited me to the last couple and I've always been so down but not been able to join. So I will I will be there for one of them, I promise. I can't wait. Um, I would love you to. It would be amazing, Ray. Although <laughs> I'll probably be just trying desperately to hang on to your coattails as you're flying off into the distance, but I will be there. Some Catch her. Catch her. Someone stop that woman. Maybe I'll take one of your wheels off and you'll still be... <laughs> maybe the same speed as me (laughs) awesome ollie amazing thank you so much for joining us i will see you soon pleasure awesome thanks team speak to you later bye bye oj the cinderella story who'd have thought it is. I know, I know. Whoever these shoes shall fit, <laughs> I shall marry. Um, have you ever... Do you know what a raffle is? Are you aware what a raffle is as a as Canadian? As in, like, you buy tickets you and you win in... something. Yeah. yeah. I'm just checking you have raffles I mean, in Canada. I don't like, know. Maybe it's not a thing in I Canada. I don't know if this is a British thing. This definitely could be a global thing, buying tickets for charity and hopefully winning something. Yeah. I mean, believe me, a British institution's the meat raffle. You used to get down pubs where you'd buy a ticket and win like some pork, some beef, and a couple of shoulders of mutton. Um, <laughs> but uh, what have you? Uh, what have you won in your life? Have you ever won anything good in a raffle? Nothing good. But I've always, I've always won like a little something here and there. But I honestly, nothing springs to mind. So obviously, they weren't that special. <laughs> 
one thing in my entire life. I'm 41 years old, I think. Am I? Yes, I am. Um, I've won one thing in my entire Go life, on. and that was on a day trip to Alton Towers, which is a theme park. Um, I won the raffle, and I got a football, but like one of those really cheap, you call them flyaway footballs, which have no weight to them. Uh, well, that was it. I won it. I was so proud. I went home that night, and the estate we lived on, um, the people who lived in the flat under us, I kicked the football against their window and broke it. And the kid who lived there, who was a couple of years older than me, came out and punched me in the stomach. <laughs> there you go. That's my raffle story. That's, that's the only thing I've ever won in a raffle. I've got really bad memories. Really bad memories of raffles. Okay, so we won't do that Awful. at the Christmas party then. No, let's not. No footballs, no punching me in the stomach, please. Uh, right, it's time to introduce our friend Mr. Payne, Mark Payne, producer of this show, our handler, um, to talk us through multi-sport athletes. Why are we doing that this week, Mark? Uh, well, the man who, as I speak on Wednesday, is currently leading the tour, who's just uh, dominated the Queen stage from the GC group, Slovenia's Primoz Roglic, is famously a man who was a ski jumper before he was a professional cyclist, on his way to look what looks like a uh, Tour de France victory. So we thought we'd go through... Oh, don't jinx the man. What's wrong <laughs> with you? Oh, I'm still more exciting five stages to week. go. <laughs> five stages to go, man, including that time trial. But yes, go on, sorry. Yes, he's a ski jumper, isn't he? He was a ski jumper, yeah. Yeah, and it's become a bit of a cycling law and people kind of often get a bit sort of annoyed that it's always brought up in relation to him. I, so I thought I, love I would, it. I love I it. would I wind up, them up chance. a little bit more. Yeah, oh God, yeah, I've been doing podcasts for Peloton magazine in America um, with a load of British cyclists. La Course en Tête uh, podcast. And um, uh, I, I, I shoehorn it in every time. And it's only because it's a meme. It's literally like, oh, you mean Primoz Roglic, the ski jumper. Oh, he's yeah. good on his sense. Very good. Although he brings up himself. He was doing an interview after stage, whatever it was, the stage before today he brought it up that on the climb up to whatever today's climb was the big one he actually pointed it out that like ski like ski jump markers or something on the way up so he does bring it up himself he's a self self-generating meme yes so <laughs> we are looking at mark then people who have excelled in more than one sport for instance triathletes because they have to excel in three sports am i right Listen, Raya if Hubble? you are not world class at one sport throw two others in there and hope for the best <laughs> I love it. Um, so, uh, what? How are we going to do this? We rated it last week. We rated it on. We've done bounce, uh, comeback ability. Last week we did. What did we do last week? Last week it was unexpected winners. Unexpected, yeah. yeah. Unexpected winners. What should we call? What should we rate out of ten this for? Should we show off ability? I think maybe show off mm. ability. Let's rate it on oh, that. Okay. ten out of ten. Where are we starting, Mark? Okay, so uh, we're going to start with Rebecca Romero. Now, it's a name that may or may not be familiar with you. Uh, it's an amazing story right at the start of uh, Great Britain's dominance of the track cycling campaign. She came to, to the fore then. Um, and she won the um, individual pursuit at the Beijing Olympics. Uh, Wendy Hoovenagel was also a Brit in the final. Uh, she was 28, I think, at the time she'd done it. But at that point, she'd this was her second career. It was her second Olympic medal because she'd also earned a silver at the Athens Olympics in the quadruple skulls and the rowing uh, and had, had a back injury and been forced to retire. And she basically went straight from retiring from rowing in 2006 to winning World Cup events in less than five months. Mm. Which is unbelievable. Uh, for show of ability, where are you going to go with this, Rhea? Because I, I know why I'm going to go high. I have a reason why I'm going to go high. So I am going to go medium high. The reason for that is because, one, this is epic. I have also broken my back, and coming back from it this quickly is out of this world. So I'm going to go pretty high for that. However, the other reason why I'm not going to go top is because... 
Ex-rowers are some of the best athletes in the world. And once you have that pedigree, you can basically go and do anything. So I'm going in it at a solid eight today. Mm, okay, so I'm going to go... I think I'm, I'm going to go as a nine. And the reason I'm going to go as a nine is because... Um, she managed to excel at both and to show how hard it is Bradley Wiggins which you know however you like Bradley Wiggins however you take him on your toast he was you know and he is is he is he the most most gold medaled athlete in Olympic history what's the, whatever it is he holds records because he's won at so many Olympic games and you know he was the first Brit to ever win a Tour de France one of the best cyclists this country has ever produced yet when he retired he decided he was going to have an attempt at rowing and didn't get anywhere I mean, I know he only did it on an ergo, <laughs> but it was a bit of a failure. Although apparently, did he miss the start or he only rode 500 metres when he thought it was 2,000? I think there was there was something around <laughs> it. But um, yeah, so to show how difficult it is, look at Bradley Wiggins, who is the consummate amazing athlete, record-breaking the rest of this it. This is exactly what I mean, is you've got to start as a rower, get that VO2 capacity, get that cardiovascular system as strong as rowers get them, and then you can go mm, and do any other sport. Yeah. Don't go and try and be a rower after you've done something else. It doesn't matter. But if you've got the engine, um, what? So I actually am all right at rowing. I've only ever done it on an ergo. What can you do? Two thousand meters. Oh, I, in rowing? I honestly couldn't tell you. I don't know the last time I was on an erg. Because uh, I was very close to buying one. Because I got really into it. For, I'd, I'd had I'd had a few back problems, and I thought I need to strengthen my core, and that was my way of doing it. Because I can't stand doing sit-ups. Um, mm-hmm. And I managed to get two thousand meters under under seven minutes, and I was so proud of myself. Ooh. But I I was sick in my mouth and had to be had to be unclipped. <laughs> from the ergo it was one of those ones you know you see it you know I was like literally I was like that but a sick in my mouth dribbling out <laughs> and and one of the guys who worked at the gym was like should I just unclip your legs for you as I'm lying on the floor <laughs> contorted off it it's like yeah that'd be nice to thank be you fair, you got a bucket <laughs> in all fairness OJ it's not the first time you've done that I'm no. pretty sure at the end of a race that you and I have done yeah. together on Zwift on your turbo trainer I'm, I'm pretty sure you've done the same yeah, thing yeah <laughs> yeah you know go deep that's what you need I like to suffer it makes me feel like I'm alive <laughs> Uh, where are we going next? <laughs> oh, I was just going to say before we moved on from that, that, that thing you were mentioning with Bradley Wiggins, if you've not seen it and you've not seen what Bradley Wiggins has looked like since retiring from cycling, it is the strangest bit of footage you'll ever see because essentially <laughs> you've got all these lean, really strong rowers lying down in the middle of the Olympic velodrome where he basically had all of his glory. And then you've got this slightly bedraggled man with a beard and a headband, <laughs> really long hair. And then the race starts and he just sort of like, he goes really enthusiastic for the first three rows. And then he just stops, looks around and then carries on. And then halfway through, he then decides, you know what, this isn't for me, slows down and gives yeah. up and never no, went no, back no. to it. I, I'm sure, I, no, no, I don't think he gave up. I think he, he didn't realise the distance. I'm I sure think, that's what I heard. I think what happened was he messed the start up and then just basically realised like, oh, he wasn't going to win and went, oh, not for me. <laughs> I'm, but taking, anyway. I'm taking my own, I'm going home on my own. Um, he looks like, if you've ever seen the film, um, the Wes Anderson film, the Royal Tenenbaums, he looked like Luke, looks like Luke Wilson's character in that. Look it up, Google it. <laughs> but Rebecca Romero, as we before we move on, she to give you an idea of just how rare this feat is, she was only the second woman in Olympic history to have won two Olympics uh, medals at a different sport. Amazing. Amazing. 
Very amazing. Uh, so we'll go on, to, go on to the next one. Now, now I knew this uh, this person before, um, but I was amazed to find out that they were a professional athlete in another sport. Katie Taylor. If you follow boxing in any form, you'll know the name Katie Taylor. Uh, one of the greatest amateur um, athletes, uh, was amateur boxers ever in men or women. Five straight uh, championship golds, uh, an Olympic title as an amateur. She's currently the undisputed world champion, best pound for pound boxer, unbeaten record as a pro. Uh, but she also played in an Irish Cup final and played uh, 11 games for the Republic of Ireland and scored twice as a footballer. Mm. So. I mean, I mean, that's amazing. I mean, absolutely amazing. Katie Taylor's a bit of a hero of mine. The fact that she has been so impressive over her career. I didn't realise she'd played football as well. I'm going to give her a straight 7 out of 10. I'm going to give her 7 out of 10. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. 7 out of 10. Her boxing career has been incredibly epic. Could you take her in a fight? How long? Actually, no, of course not. She's a trained boxer. How long do you think you could last? What are you talking about? Could you? How? I don't know. I don't, I don't reckon. I'm I'm tough. I can do Ironmans left, right and centre. I absolutely love the going the distance. I don't reckon I could take a punch. Yeah. What's what's the... I what's, reckon I could last two rounds, but purely because I can only run away from her for two rounds yeah. before getting tired. You say that, but when you actually... When you get somebody who's trained, a trained boxer, they're very good at cutting down the space to stop you doing that. Um, what is the... I don't know who said it. It was either Tyson or Dana White or someone like that, which is everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the yeah, face. Tyson. Right. Is that a Tyson, the Tyson line, isn't it? Um, there was another really good Tyson line I heard as well recently, which was, I'm going to Google it while we're talking, actually, um, which was about social... It was Tyson on social media. Was it, your ear looks delicious? No! <laughs> no! No, here you go. Here it is, Mike Tyson. Social media Social media made you all way too comfortable with disrespecting people and not getting punched in the face for it. I mean, <laughs> that just means Mike Tyson's going to come and slap me one now, doesn't it? No, <laughs> Don't you be disrespecting him. Don't you be disrespecting him. Oh, hey, behave. Mike. Hey, Mike. All right, who are we going with next? Uh, well, next on the list is Kevin Moran. Now, he's another Irish star that excelled in two sports. Um... He made 231 appearances for Man United beginning in 1980, uh, sorry, winning the FA Cup in 1982 and 83, and again in 84, 85. Um, he was also the first man ever to be red carded in an FA Cup final, so he's got that on his side as well. But he was also a brilliant Gaelic <laughs> footballer. So he won two All-Ireland finals for Dublin back-to-back years in 76 and 77 and was one of the stars of the game as well. Yeah, I'm going to go low with this. I'm going to go low with this. I'm going to say six uh, out of ten. Yeah. The reason for that is Gaelic football and football are vaguely similar. The difference being that Gaelic football, you could just pick up the ball and run around with it like you're still at junior school. So I'm going to go with <laughs> six out of ten. I would say it's closer to rugby. I remember playing this and getting abs. Like it's one of the hardest sports I can ever remember. I played this in PE. Right, I think it was one of those days. You, I, I don't know if you remember this when you played PE at school and. Um, it would be raining. You're like, right, we're going to be in the gym today. Like when it's really, really raining. And the teacher went, right, he was an ex, like Marine. And he went, right, we're going to play Gaelic football. None of us had ever played it before. <laughs> he gave us a ball. He didn't tell us any of the rules. So I don't know if I actually did play Gaelic football, but I remember getting absolutely decked halfway through the game and coming home like absolutely soaked and cold and in a lot of pain. So I've got a lot of respect for anyone that plays it professionally. Just going to say. Well, that. look, I, I'm being slightly facetious. <laughs> of course, there is skill involved in Gaelic football. I'm just saying they are are similar-ish. Fine. The the skills you would need in football and Gaelic football for me are very similar. Six out of ten. To, to be fair, if Gaelic football is sort of hard as you say it is, it basically just got them set up to be able to do 231 caps for one of the biggest Premier League teams because yeah. he had that sort of backbone to him, which, you know, 
uh, sometimes I struggle with footballers having, <laughs> if I'm going to be perfectly <laughs> honest. Uh, oh, love, so it. love it, love it, love it. What are you going to give I'm it? Gonna, I'm going to go five and a half out of ten. Oh, mm. brutal. Yeah. Um, what have we got time for, Mark? One or two more? What are we saying? I reckon we've got time for two more. I'll just go through this one quickly because most people will know this name and he- heard the, the connection with his multi-sports. He's one of the most recognisable multi-sport athletes. Uh, John Surtees is famously the first and only man to have won world titles on two wheels and four. He, w- he won multiple um, motorbike titles. Uh, he won the, I mean, the spell of dominance I didn't quite realize. So he uh, won the 500cc class, I think five times, and the 350cc class, like just about the same amount. First man ever to win the Isle of Man TT three times, and then went on to win a Formula One title as well. So, I mean, pretty, pretty decent record as far as I go. Yeah. So, hang on, what are the multi sports? Motorcycling and, and Formula One. Five it's out still, of ten. It's still motor. It's still motor. Yeah, it's still motor. If you know how to take a corner, you know how to take a corner. If you know where to break, you know know where to break. I don't know. I'm I with reckon. You, I'm totally I, with you. I, I would say like Valentino Rossi's Not tried that we it. We do now. You know, it didn't didn't exactly work out for him. There's been plenty of that have tried no. and got nowhere near. No, but come on, we're not talking about a totally different sport. We're talking about things which are in the same hemisphere. So I tend to agree with OJ here, but the other thing is, is I, again, I think it's that rowing scenario in the same vein. If you start off as a motorcyclist, which you have that inherent fear of danger, much more so than in a car because you're not protected. If you've got the skills in motorcycling, I think they're much more transferable into car racing than, than the other way around. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What number? I'm I five out of ten. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm with you, bud. We'll go into yeah. the last one because this last one is is incredible just for the level at which it was competed at. Um, Dion Sanders, arguably one of the best players ever to step on the gridiron in NFL. Uh, he was a defensive player of the year. Um, he's in the College Football and Pro Football Hall of Fame. Um, elite return man. He set the record for the most return touchdowns, defensive touchdowns in um, in history. Uh, but at the same time, was also playing Major League Baseball, and this isn't a point where Major League Baseball exists entirely in the NFL offseason. They often overlapped. So in 1989, he became the first man ever to score a touchdown and a home run in the same week. And he's also the only man in history to have played in a Super Bowl and the World Series. This is Deion Sanders. Deion Sanders. That's amazing because I thought... The guy I was thinking of did something very similar, and that's Bo Jackson. Bo yes. Jackson, yeah. Yeah, because Bo Jackson was... I mean, there was an ESPN 30 for 30 about him, which I saw, but I watched it drunk, so I can't totally <laughs> remember what happened. I just remember him, me going, wow, this is so great, and then, like, crying into a glass of Rioja. But I can't... So, yeah, OK. Well, to be able to do both those things at that level is unbelievable mainly because everyone who plays American football gets absolutely mashed up and everyone who plays yeah. baseball I don't know becomes champion spitters so I'm going to say <laughs> 10 out of 10 <laughs> rating highly I mean that I I grew up in North America so love these two sports so much and I remember I staying you're Canadian up. hang on whoa 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 North America bud North America oh come yes on. Canada's my favourite state of America I love it I know mine state. too <laughs> <laughs> and I remember like watching the World Series as a kid, staying up late because it had gone well past the ninth inning. And so, yeah, to be able to do both again, like you said, OJ, it is not just about the fact that he's been able to do both. It's the fact that fo- American footballers put their body through so much. So to be able to cross over into the two sports is pretty epic. Ten out of ten. Yeah, yeah nine, out of 10. Saying- nine out of ten. 
Bo Jackson and him once played a game of baseball. They only ever met once professionally. Uh, and uh, Bo Jackson got three home runs and Dion got one. Uh, oh, and, boo. Yeah, I mean, I'm taking it down. Okay, eight out of ten. He's been taking down two, two points. But yeah, but there'll be more of this on the website, um, same place as last week. And if you, if you thought they were great and you want to find out more, there's some amazing ones on there. Chris Hoy, Tim Duncan, Ash Barty, Alex Zanardi, and Pauli. Chris Hoy. Chris Hoy. I know where you're going, yeah. Chris Hoy. Cyclist <laughs> turned into rally driver. Yeah, motor racer. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to disagree with that. And I love Chris Hoy, and I've met him, and I've interviewed him, and he is a true knight of the realm. You know, you know, <laughs> if you define somebody who should be Sir Chris Hoy, he is that. But and he was amazing, and the way he cycled and his thigh, you know, everything is true, true sir. But are we really going to say that his racing career makes him a successful second athlete? He went into Le Mans. Just saying, it's fairly competitive. But yeah, mm. if you want to find out the true backstory of some of these, there are some amazing backstories in there because I, some of them blew my mind. Like, I'm not going to spoil it, but I will say, read the Tim Duncan one because how he ended up leaving his first sport and ending up in the sport that he became so dominant in is quite an incredible story. Oh, so, well uh, done for teasing me. I'm now going to have to read it. Cheers, Mark. <laughs> could have just told me. Anyway, it's been an absolute pleasure as always. Thank you um, to Raya Hubble. Yes, Raya. Oh, thank, thank you, you. buddy. Yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you for coming to the... Hey, listen, when we shut up the um, the Good Time Sport Club, who's locking up tonight? Are you going to do the shutters, put the chairs away? Is that going to be you? No, no, no. That, yeah, that is well and truly you, my friend. Fine. I'll sweep the floors. Uh, thank you for all your great reviews so far. It's been great having you. Thank you for being part of the club. The Good Time Sports Club is a shock giraffe production and was presented by me, Raya Hubble. And me, OJ Borge. Special thanks to our guest, Marvin Sordell and Ollie Phillips. This show is produced by Mark Payne with additional production and support by James Watkins. Until next time, OJ. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.